the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, we're going to uh, start with uh, verse 15, which is on page 108. Uh, We ended last time by just briefly going over some of the interesting suggestions that people have given in the past about why in the world Yeshua would come to be baptized or have a mikvah uh, at the call of Yochanan Hamadbil, uh, John the Baptizer, there in the Jordan, calling people to repentance and confession of their sins. When we read Mark and Luke, neither Mark nor Luke have any of the uh, two verses that Matthew includes, which, which tells us of the somewhat struggle that Yochanan had with Yeshua's request. Why do the other gospel writers not include it? I can't say. Why does Matthew include it? Again, I can't say. Except that we know the problems that exist in our mind probably existed in the mind of people in the early centuries as well. And that is, why would Yeshua participate in a baptism that had as its focal point repentance and confession of sins? Indeed, if Yeshua was coming to confess his sins and seek repentance before the Father, then we have uh, a significant problem in in what we uh, traditionally have called Christology or the doctrine of the Messiah. For if he indeed is uh, himself a sinner, then on what basis could he offer himself as a perfect or sinless sacrifice for the sins of others? As we know, for instance, on Yom Kippur, as we find it in the Torah, the first thing that the high priest does on that day, well, one of the first things, one of the early things that he does in the ritual is to offer a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his family. And um, so um, Yeshua would have had to offer two sacrifices, which, of course, he couldn't have done and didn't do. And so the whole issue of Yeshua's uh, sinlessness or what in theological circles is called his impeccability, the impeccability of the Messiah is at the heart of our understanding of salvation itself. This, of course, is at odds with the understanding of salvation, which is usually considered uh, by, the, by modern Judaism and, and uh, the rabbis. And that is that God does not require payment for sin, that God graciously forgives sins on the basis of his mercy. Um, that is not an ancient uh, perspective of Judaism, by the way. Uh, we know this from the older liturgies. For instance, in the Yom Kippur liturgy, we read that the ashes of Isaac atone for the sins of Israel. Why would Israel need to have her sins atoned for by the ashes of Isaac? And some might even say, well, Isaac wasn't really sacrificed, was he? And of course, the rabbis say, no, he wasn't. But because he was so willing to be sacrificed, God accredited his willingness to die as though he actually did die. And in that, they say, uh, his ashes atone for Israel on the day of Yom Kippur. 
So we know that uh, early on uh, in, the, in the more ancient sages, there was a sense that a meritorious person, a righteous person, could uh, uh, accrue merit for others. That was clearly. Now, whether they thought that the Messiah was going to do this, uh, we know that they did. At least some of them believed in Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah the son of Joseph, who would be the suffering Messiah, by whose stripes we would be healed. And contrary to modern interpretation by the uh, rabbis, Isaiah 53 was in the older rabbis attributed to the Messiah. So it was only under the influence of Christianity that there was the need to change some of these uh, interpretations, or at least that's the way it appears. Question, and here's a microphone. When does the ancient thought transform into the modern thought? That's a very good question. Um, We know that Rashi is accredited uh, for making a huge shift in the interpretation of Isaiah 53, and he's quite late. Um, When you talk with the modern uh, Orthodox uh, Jewish yeshiva students or rabbis about, for instance, Isaiah 53, they almost are unwilling to acknowledge that there were other interpretations previous to Rashi. And Rashi was the one who said the suffering servant is Israel, not an individual. But, but, but is Israel. Um, I think there was a, a significant shift uh, in the polemic that went on between synagogue and church in the second and third centuries. And, of course, the, the Talmuds that we have are not earlier than the third century. So what we read in the Talmud may reflect something of the struggle that was going on. I mean, let's face it, the synagogue was fighting for its very existence. It was politically and socially being marginalized to the max. And uh, Christianity was, was sweeping Europe, and the reason why was because, um, and, and the Middle East, the reason why was because it was being mandated by the government. <laughs> and so it had a lot of clout. Um, so uh, that's a very good question. The problem that we have is that we, don't, we wish we had literature from the rabbis that was clearly from the first century, which we don't. We have literature that reflects that, but, but not necessarily literature from that time. So it's hard to know when that shifts. But clearly by the time you come to second and third century of the common era, you have the Christian church making statements which are obviously fo- a foil against the synagogue, and you have the synagogue making statements which are obviously... Uh, taking up the fray with the with the Christian Church and, and the things that the Christian Church is saying. Okay, the question: What about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and what do they reflect? Um, you know, uh, at first I'll say this: the Dead Sea Scrolls are, without a doubt, the most significant manuscript find in our lifetimes. There's no doubt about that, and they have shed more light upon early Judaisms and upon uh, uh, Mishnaic and Hebraic, uh, uh, Rabbinic Hebrew, they are absolutely a, a tremendous find. On the other hand, we sometimes tend to be pan-Kumaran, as though if it's found in Qumran, it must be what was the common thing. And we all know that that's not the case. Qumran were sectarians. They had removed themselves from Jerusalem. They had removed themselves from the mainstream of Judaism, uh, particularly the Sadducees, the Pharisees. 
And uh, whether they were Essenes or not, we don't know, but most say that they were. All I'm saying with that is that when we find something in Qumran, it does not necessarily mean it was in any way, shape, or form even close to normative. What do we find in Qumran when it comes to some of the things? We find a, a, a close affinity to the kinds of things we hear Yeshua saying, the kinds of things we hear Yochanan Hamad Beel, the Yochanan the baptizer saying. They were very much given to purities, to a life of holiness. They were very much given to an eschatology, an apocalyptic eschatology. The end was near. It was coming. When we hear John the Baptist saying, get ready, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not too far from what we hear in Qumran saying, you know, the sons of darkness will soon be overcome by the sons of light. The teacher of righteousness is coming and or is here. And uh, it won't be long until the righteousness prevails over these slanderers in Jerusalem who betray the temple and so forth and so on. So when we hear, you know, there have been a, there's been a lot of work done by, you know, David Fluser, uh, Brad Young, uh, many others who have compared, you know, Qumran with the, the Gospels and so forth. Um, but I'm not absolutely convinced that it's one for one. I think we have to read Qumran with kind of a, uh, a pair of glasses that says, remember, these people were out of the mainstream. Oh, what was Qumran's for, uh, position on... Uh, as far as sacrifice. As far as sacrifice was concerned. Well, you have... the, the Part of the problem you have in Qumran is that the texts are uh, fragmentary. Um, you know, there was a lot of flap about the pierced Messiah in Qumran. Then there were scholars who said, no, that's been misread, so forth and so on. Uh... Cole, uh, K-O-H-L, I believe, uh, professor, former professor at the Hebrew University, um, came out very strongly with his book saying that when you read Qumran, you have nothing but to conclude that they were anticipating a, a, a Messiah who would come and suffer on their behalf. Did the suffering pay for sin? Atone for, it, it atoned for their sins. No. Is that what the whole Qumran society believed? We don't know. Is that just one? Remember, the Qumran society spans 150, 200 years minimum. So you have generations that are coming and going and theologies that probably shifted and changed. Um, but the idea that you have in, in earliest Judaisms that we know of, the concept of a suffering Messiah dying for the transgressions of the people... I think, while it's hotly disputed in our time, I don't think it can be denied. I think you have enough evidence to say clearly that was the case. Um, if we believe the gospel records, we certainly know that. I mean, Caiaphas himself says, look, isn't it, isn't it right that one should die for the nation and not the whole nation die? I mean, there was this idea of substitution. And how, how could they not see it in the substitution of the... Uh, the sacrificial animal on behalf of the of the person who c came and brought it for a guilt offering or for a sin offering and those kinds of things. It comes down to the to a very uh, shall we say basic issue, and that is, does God's justice have to be satisfied in order for Him to forgive sin? And I think the scriptures are quite clear that that's the case. You know, we were reading on Shabbat as we we're reading through the Psalms. We we're reading Psalm eighty-five. And it says there, what is it that, 
justice and peace have kissed together. Was, is that the two terms? Mercy and truth, or I think righteousness is in that same verse. Well, how can mercy and truth kiss? In other words, get married. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the metaphor there. I mean, that's the idea there. The, if the truth is, is that I'm a sinner, and therefore God is obligated with regard to sin, what is the obligation of God with regard to sinners? Death. If he refuses to give them death, then he, he uh, fails to be faithful to what he said he would do. The soul that sin shall die. So how can mercy, on the one hand, be extended to those who truthfully are sinners? I mean, that is the dilemma. And that's the good news of the gospel, is that the, the penalty has been taken by someone else on our behalf. So that God's justice can be satisfied and so that he can be merciful. As Paul puts it, he can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. He can be both. But both must be satisfied. So uh, that's the message of the gospel. And uh, that's the message that, that Matthew is giving us. That's the message that Yeshua came to give. That he would die in order to pay for the sins of the people. Uh, question, Rose? No, you said something about the ashes of Isaac. Okay, it's not talking about cremation. It's talking about the fact that in Genesis 22, Abraham was told, was commanded by God to sacrifice his son. The rabbis realized that he didn't, that there was a substitute in his place, the ram, right? No, everyone agrees with that. Um, however, they say God accredited Abraham with actually having sacrificed his son Isaac, not on the basis only of Abraham's willingness to do it, but on the basis of Isaac's willingness to do it. In all of the Akidah, or Genesis 22, we never one time hear him struggling or resisting. He was not a little boy. He was a young man. And the rabbis take that to mean that he willingly... he, he, he if you read the Midrashim on, on Genesis 22, it's, it's kind of almost comical. Here's Isaac laying on, the, laying on the, uh, the wood, and he's tied up, and he tells his father, he says, he says, Father, tie me tighter so I don't move when you cut my throat, lest, lest the sacrifice would be invalid. I mean, the, the, they, they see his willingness to die is so significant in the, in the text. Then they, they reason this way, that God saw... Isaac's absolute willingness to give himself on behalf of uh, his father's uh, you know, loyalty to his father, that God said, okay, I'm not going, you're not going to die, but I'm going to count it as though you did. And it's that that the rabbis say accrues to the merit of Israel on each Yom Kippur, that God remembers the sacrifice of Isaac. The willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his son, the willingness of the son to give himself, and that is sufficient in God's eyes to atone for sin. So, um, this is also something that is not very often talked about in uh, in rabbinic circles today, because it sounds very much uh, like the Christian doctrine of substitution by way of sacrifice and atonement by way of sacrifice. Okay. Another uh, another hand over here, and then we need to get to Matthew.
For those who believe that the sins are forgiven solely on the basis of his mercy, do they also look forward to the rebuilding of the temple? Um, yes. And, and uh, Judaism looks forward to, Orthodox Judaism looks forward to the rebuilding of the temple because for the simple reason that it, it offers the opportunity once again to obey God in ways that we cannot obey him. Now, um, they would say, if, if you were to ask, well, then why did God require sacrifices? They would say, the requirement of the sacrifices was to prove your willingness to repent. In other words, in the taking of a life was, is so egregious of an animal. The taking of a life is so egregious that in doing it, you would say, I, I really am sorry. In other words, this is a terrible thing that I have to do. But I'm willing to do it to prove to you that I'm truly repentant. Uh, yeah. I'm a little surprised or else mistaken that they accept this, these ashes, supposedly, of the, of the substitute for Isaac. For the simple reason that I thought that the lamb was sacrificed before it was bound and laid on the altar. And I'm, I'm just wondering about that because obviously he was, wasn't. You know, the throat wasn't slit before he was bound and laid on the altar. Right. So I'm, I'm a little confused about that. Well, the, uh, the whole laws for, for how you were to sacrifice something wasn't given until Exodus. So you have, uh, you have the laws of sacrifice maybe are a little more uh, uh, different, lenience, whatever. But um, anyway, that's what the that's how the rabbis view it. Um, so. So this is what uh, the question comes to us. Why in the world would this one who is the sinless Messiah, why would he come to John and want to be baptized? OK, let me just quickly review the possible options that some of the commentators have given. There are many more than this, by the way. I weeded out those that I thought were just absolutely uh, without any substance. Um, first of all, that his, uh, some say, and this is actually oftentimes found in many Christian commentators, that when he did a, a mikvah, it was anticipatory of his death. In other words, since, since a baptism or a mikvah is a symbol of dying and raising again, that when he went into the Jordan, he was saying, this is a foreshadowing of what I'm going to do on the cross and in the, in the tomb, uh, death and resurrection. And it is by this that righteousness will come to mankind. So when he says, um, uh, in order for us to uh, uh, fulfill all righteousness, he's talking about um, the righteousness that would come through his death. Some have understood the mikvah as uh, being actually uh, taking care of ritual impurity that Yeshua himself was ritually impure, that it was time for him to become public in his office as uh, Messiah, and that, that in order to do that, he needed to be ritually clean, and so he underwent a mikvah at the Jordan for that purpose. Um, many uh, of the early Christian commentators, the church fathers, said that he did it as a way of expressing what would become a um, sacrament in the church. In other words, that when he was baptized, he showed his followers how they too could become righteous. And this, of course, would follow the, along the lines of, of Roman Catholicism and other branches off of Roman Catholicism that take baptism as a means of gaining righteousness. Fourthly, 
Some have suggested that Yochanan was calling the people to repentance and righteous living, and that when Yeshua underwent the, his baptism or his mikvah, he was telling them that the thing that Yochanan is calling you to can only be had if you follow me. It would be fulfilled in him. Some have suggested that Yeshua actually didn't need to do a mikvah. It was no big deal. But it would be like someone wanting to be coach of the, of the basketball team who never played basketball. So here he was coming to lead the people in the ways of Torah, but they had never seen him do a mikvah. And so he came and said, okay, uh, you expect me to do a mikvah? I'll do a mikvah. You know, I don't want you talking behind my back saying he didn't do a mikvah, so I'll do a mikvah in order to get along with you and to get along in the world, so to speak. The last one that I list here is the idea that in the word fulfill, uh, it means to fulfill Scripture. And the reason that this one is taken is because uh, every time you look up the word fulfill in the book of Matthew, almost every time, maybe with the exception of two or three, it, mean, it is used in terms of fulfilling something that was found in the prophets. So when he says it, it's, it's necessary for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness, it would mean to fulfill the righteousness that the prophets said uh, the Messiah would have in the largest uh, in the, in the largest sense. In other words, a foreshadow of all that he would do in fulfilling the prophets uh, who said the Messiah would come, uh, would bring salvation to Israel, would lead Israel in ways of righteousness, would subdue the nations, and so forth. So, some would say, okay, this is the beginning of Yeshua's public ministry and the beginning of his public fulfillment of what the prophets had said. Um, of course, a number of commentators consider this whole thing to be kind of myth- mythological anyway. So they, they think, look, baptism became such a huge issue in the 2nd and 3rd century church. I mean, this is how you got saved. Okay? They saw salvation as part of baptism. It would only make sense that they would write this back into the life of Yeshua as the, as the means by which they would have some credibility with their baptism. Um, but this anachronistic approach is not necessary. We already know that the mikvah was very common in Judaism of the time. It wasn't something that had to be invented. It was something that was very much in place. So I think these, uh, these commentators, uh, liberal commentators, tend to shoot themselves in the foot because they, they're not willing to accept just basic historical evidence. Doing baptism was a huge common thing in the first century. There was no reason that the... Second or third century church would have thought they invented it. All right, on page 109, let's do some evaluation of these. Oh, an, another question. Hold on just a sec. But wouldn't, <clears throat> wouldn't Yeshua, like every other Jewish man, have had a mikvah every time he came to Jerusalem for the festivals before he went to the temple? Yeah, probably so. so I mean, this wouldn't have but been the, the only time he had a mikvah, probably. No. But the difference is, is that that was not what Yochanan was calling people to. Right. He was not calling people to, to ritual purity. He was calling them to repentance and confession of sins. Right. But we tend to, you know, we were all taught growing up that, you know, this was the only time it, it would have been. No, no. I am certain that Yeshua underwent many mikvahot during his lifetime, especially in the last, you know, three or four years, because he was constantly in and out of the temple. That would have just been commonplace. Right. All right. 
So as to the first option, that the mikveh was anticipatory of his own baptism of death, it doesn't square with Matthew's use of the word righteous, which always means, in Matthew, moral conduct in accord with God's will. You know, this is one of the big problems we come we we, we face, uh, and that is the meaning of terms. More often than not, I would say, in Christian circles, when you ask them what the word righteous means, what do you think they mean? What would they say? Righteous means to be right with God, to be forgiven, to have your sins forgiven. But if you look and see how many times the word righteousness or righteous or to be declared righteous is used in the Gospels, you will find that the vast majority of times it means to live righteously, to have conduct that is in accord with God's will. One we would call forensic. That would be, you know, for instance, um, whether we like it or not, um, there are people who are declared innocent by a judge when in fact... They're guilty. Okay? Forensically, they're innocent. When the judge drops his gavel and says, innocent, all charges dropped, he walks out a man, free man, without any penalty, without anything, even if he did the crime. So forensically, he's, he's, uh, he's righteous. Okay? That doesn't mean he's actually righteous. Right? He could have actually done the crime, just got away with it. But what you re- when you read the word righteous in the in the Gospels, what you regularly see is that it's it's it is righteousness in the sense of conduct, not simply somebody saying that somebody else is righteous, but in terms of conduct. And of course, we know um, that Paul also agreed with this: that if you are declared righteous, it's not simply because God's saying something about you that really isn't true. When God declares us righteous in the Messiah, he's not saying, look, they're really guilty as, as all get out, but I'm just going to, to pretend that they're righteous. That's not it at all. Because Paul makes it very clear that when God declares a person righteous, there is a change that occurs within that person. And there is a dwelling of the Spirit that causes a change of life. So that righteous living becomes more and more the characteristic of a person whom God has declared righteous. It's like faith and faithfulness, two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And that many in the prevailing Christian theology of our day would deny that. They would say, oh, no, 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 you can have righteous, you can be righteous before God and live like the devil. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Okay, so the first one when it says, when he says that all righteousness may be fulfilled, it can't mean simply that all righteousness, that I will, de- I will do something that will make sinners righteous down the road. Righteousness here means correct conduct, I would think, if, if it's the same as uh, how Matthew uses it elsewhere. Moreover, it's questionable that Yeshua would have included Yochanan. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. If it just meant that the baptism was foreshadowing of Yeshua's death. Yochanan didn't have anything to do with his death. So how is it that both Yeshua and Yochanan are going to fulfill righteousness? Number two has much to commend it, I think. Like uh, someone has commented here, it's un- undoubtedly the case that Yeshua contracted ritual impurity and that in doing so, he needed to take a mikvah in order to go up to the temple. Just remember, contracting ritual impurity does not mean you sinned. 
It means you've lived in a fallen world. Okay? You know, if you have to walk from the parking lot across a muddy field, you're going to get mud on your shoes. And it doesn't matter what your intent is or whatever that's going to happen. Okay? So when you come in, you have to take your shoes off and, and do the things that are proper. And the same thing is true. Uh, in terms of ritual purity, Yeshua undoubtedly contracted ritual purity and took a mikvah. So, number two, that he was doing it simply to uh, regain ritual purity has some merit. Uh, its shortcoming, however, is that it does not fit with the specific purpose of Yochanan's baptism, that is, a call to repentance and confession of sins. If Yeshua had come in order to demonstrate his ritual purity in light of his coming self-sacrifice on behalf of sinners, one wonders why he chose Yochanan's baptism. Nevertheless, ritual impurity could in general be considered symbolic of sin in the broadest sense, since ritual impurity was always connected, even if only remotely, to death, and death was the result of sin in the world. In this case, Yeshua could be seen as the sin-bearer, that is, ritually impure, on, on what... What count? Well, because somehow death entered into the world and death came from sin. And thus the mikvah could have foreshadowed the cleansing he would bring for sinners through his own death. Moreover, it may be that the words to fulfill all righteousness does not pertain entirely to the act of receiving a mikvah, but use the mikvah as a beginning point for the whole of Yeshua's coming passion. As one commentator said, it is not the baptism alone which, quote, fulfills all righteousness. Rather, the baptism constitutes the opening move of an unfolding sequence designed, building on John's existing efforts, to fulfill all righteousness. It still, in my opinion, doesn't help us understand when it says, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Maybe he's using us in a kind of a broad way, like we often say we. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. What about number three? I think it should be immediately rejected on the basis that though the emerging Christian church of the second and third centuries considered Christian baptism as a salvo for sin, it was not so taught either by Yeshua or his apostles. Number four suffers from the same problem. Number four is that uh, he undergoes a mikvah in order to declare to them that the righteousness demanded by Yochanan he would fulfill. Um, it, it suffers from the same problem as number one. That is, the righteousness is not forensic righteousness, but it's righteousness of correct conduct. In other words, what we, what we hear Yeshua saying is, it's good for me to undergo this mikvah in order to fulfill the correct conduct according to God's will. All right. Number five, uh, that he didn't really need to undergo it, but he just did it because it was expected of him does not give sufficient reason why the descent of the Spirit and the proclamation of the heavenly voice would accompany a ritual undertaken to comply with people's expectations. Moreover, the Messiahship of Yeshua was confirmed to Yochanan through the mikvah and subsequent descent of the Spirit and proclamation of the Father, and it was thus a far greater event in the minds of the gospel writers than simply one which complied with conventional expectations. I, the other thing is, is, you just don't find Yeshua complying that much with 
conventional expectations. You know, he just, you know, he, he seems like he's constantly swimming upstream against what people expect of him. And I don't see why he would do it here when, when he doesn't do it later. Number six has its merits. For it takes seriously the use of the word fulfill in Matthew's gospel. Yet its weakness is that it takes the word righteousness to mean God's righteousness, which is not generally how Matthew uses the term. Rather, to fulfill all righteousness should in context mean to do what is righteous in accordance with God's commandments. In other words, while this explanation recognizes that Yeshua's public ministry here initiated by his mikveh at the hands of Yochanan, was in fulfillment of the words of Israel's prophets, and thus a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his own covenant obligations. It fails to give a valid explanation for why Yeshua would give the reason to Yochanan as it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Yeshua, according to that explanation, was the fulfillment of the prophets. Where does John fit into that in terms of this mikveh? Um, it may be, after all, that a combination of the above suggestions would best explain the mikveh. By the way, before you read any further, if you haven't already, did you, any of you come up with explanations that are different than what have been suggested and that you would like to uh, enlighten us with? Because I would sure like to hear it. <laughs> it's a difficult. It's difficult. You know, growing up in a Baptist church, this was never talked about. We just presumed that, you know, we were all kind of uh, the uh, stepchildren of, uh, of John the Baptist somehow. And what he did in the river, we did up front in this uh, thing called the baptistry. And we never really gave it much, much thought. At least I didn't. Maybe others did. But. Well, all right. It may be that a combination of the above suggestions would best explain the issue. First, if we presume that the word righteousness is to be understood as it generally is in Matthew's gospel, that is, as moral conduct in accord with God's will, then we should understand that Yeshua's mikvah was in direct response to something commanded in the Torah or otherwise understood to be necessary in terms of obedience to God. Secondly, since the word fulfill is everywhere used by Matthew to mean the fulfillment of prophetic scripture, we should likewise seek to find an explanation for Yeshua's mikvah as related to the prophetic message about the Messiah. Now, I'll stick my neck out on this one. I'll give you a suggestion. I won't fall on my sword, but it, it commended itself to me as I thought more about it. Is it possible that the consecration of priests as given in the Torah formed the background for Yeshua's mikvah? In Exodus 29, we read of the laws given to Moses in regard to the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests who would attend the altar and fulfill the office of priest and high priest. After offering sacrifices of a bull and two rams, together with a grain offering of unleavened bread, cakes, and wafers mixed with oil, Moses is commanded to wash the priests. Then you, that is Moses, shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Interestingly, the washing with water would have been understood as a mikvah, but it is Moses who is instructed to do the washing. In other words, like the mikvah of Yochanan, the mikvah of the priests included Moses as a necessary attendant. Following the mikvah, Aaron was to be clothed in his sacred garments, which included the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, the breastplate, the turban with its golden crown, and then anointed with oil. Verse 7 of Exodus 29, Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. 
The pericope in Exodus 29 concludes with the statement, So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. The ordination of Aaron as high priest and his sons as priests involves sacrifice, donning the sacred garments, a mikvah, and anointing with oil. Only then were they duly ordained for their service as priests. It seems to me very possible then that Yeshua, recognizing his role as the suffering servant, and by the way, I think at this point in his life, he already knew that he was the suffering servant of of Adonai. Because it isn't too much longer on from this point that he tells his disciples, you know, I must by all means do this. You know, it's not that far away. And so, um, I think he knew that he was the suffering servant. And thus, as a priest, he would bear the sins of Israel and atone for them. If you read Isaiah 53, it has all kinds of priestly language in it. For instance, here's an, uh, uh, an interesting text. If you'll turn to Numbers uh, 18.23. And actually, we can go back to... Uh, Verse 21, Numbers 18:21. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they shall bear sin and die. Only the Levite shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their gener- your generations, and among the sons of Israel they shall have no inheritance. Now the question in verse 23 is, whose iniquity is being born? Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. Does that mean that the Levites themselves shall bear their own iniquity? Or does it mean that they shall bear the iniquities of Israel? It sounds like it, doesn't it? Now, if you, if you quickly turn uh, to the well-known passage of Isaiah 53, we have... The, the very similar language. Uh, for instance, in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We, uh, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The priest carries the, the iniquity. So it, it's, hard, it's hard to... In other words, the high priest bore upon his breast and upon his shoulders the names of the tribes. Why? He represented them before the Lord. He bore them before the Lord. That was the priestly duty. When Yeshua recognized that he was the suffering Messiah, that he was the one the subject of Isaiah 53. He had to see himself as a priest, but he's not from the tribe of Levi. John is, sure. John knows all about the consecration of priests. So, I'm speculating that if Yeshua had seen himself as that, then he would have recognized that in in the consecration of a priest becoming a priest, it was required that he do a mikvah. It was required that he be washed and that he be anointed. Now, some might say, well, it also required there be sacrifices. Okay, granted. But in this case, we have a priest out of the, after the order of Melchizedek, which is a slightly different priesthood, but the sacrifice comes eventually, right? The, the writer of the Hebrews says that he offered himself as the sacrifice. So, um, 
Uh, and what are the garments? Because those are the four elements. There is not only the washing. There is not only the, uh, the sacrifices uh, and, and the anointing with oil, but there is the donning of the vestments, of the sacred vestments, all required for the priests. What, 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 is the, um, the, what are the sacred vestments of this high priest? Now, if we go to Yom Kippur, we discover that on Yom Kippur, the high priest did not put on his, his robe, outer robe, did not put on his ephod. He wore white linen only. And so what does this speak of? It speaks of, of the purity of the high priest. And Yeshua came with that impeccability, with that purity. So I know that we're speaking in metaphor here. We're speaking in, in uh, type and anti-type or symbol and that which relates to the symbol. But it seems to me that that may well be part of why uh, Yochanan uh, is persuaded by Yeshua to do this mikvah. It's required of us. Why? Because the high priest did not bathe himself. He was bathed by someone else. Moses had to bathe the high priest. There had to be this uh, interchange. So, does Yochanan stand in the place of Moses? And does Yeshua stand in the place of the high priest? And is the mikvah at the Jordan the initiation that he has into his priestly work? And in the Revelation, of course, he's wearing the white garments, yes. Um, did I see a hand? I've neglected a few. Okay, uh, hold on a sec. Uh, we'll, uh... Okay. Well, it seems also Yeshua referred later on to Yochanan as uh, the one you know, declaring the wilderness, make way... Right. Eli- he comes in the power and the spirit of, of Eliyahu. Yeah. So he's saying for us to, that's what he's looking at as well. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Gary, did you have a comment? Okay. Kind of exciting to try to figure out these pieces of the puzzle. I was wanting to consider a uh, possible parallel to Exodus 19, where, mm-hmm. uh, where the God peop- commands the people to wash. Yeah, but they only washed their garments. Um. You know, it says, but be I, sure and wash your clothes. So the people washed their clothes and readied themselves for the third day. Generally speaking, if you're going to wash your clothes and you abstain from marital relations, I think you would probably would wash the rest of your yeah, body. But I isn't think it, it might be assumed. I, I, I agree. And I thought about 19 because that was obvious. And but, the, but, the, but the point is, is that why does the text make it clear, wash your garments? Because it doesn't say wash if you, yourself. If you take a mikvah, are you clothed or unclothed? Unclothed. Okay. The other question I would did you put dirty clothes back on after a mikvah or clean clothes? You I would, would assume clean clothes. But the, the actually the Torah does not give us clear um commandments about the mikvah. In fact, the mikvah as the rabbis came to construct it in the in the 1st century and later, maybe earlier than that, but at least we know by the 1st century, was based upon the clause in Leviticus that says and he shall wash all of his flesh. And so the idea of how do you wash all of your flesh? Well, you have to immerse. You have to be completely immersed to make sure all of your flesh is washed. And that's what, when I looked at Exodus 19, because I immediately went to the same place. I thought, oh, this is Sinai all over again. And we have Yeshua as the new, or, or as the greater Moses or something. But my, my, my thought here, my connection here is obviously that this is the preparation he's about to 
heavens is a, or the spirit is about to descend and God is about to make a proclamation again and the people there would be witnesses to that. So that was the connection that I was making. Sure. But the thing that um, the question I have or the thing, thought that comes to my mind, uh, you have Moses commanding the people to wash their garments. Did Moses wash his garments? It doesn't indicate that he did, but one would think that maybe he washed them three times. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you were on your way up the mountain, what would you do? <laughs> yeah. So, again, my thought here would be if everyone else was washing and Yeshua was God's servant, he would participate in the same things they did. Sure. Because God would would be mm-hmm. would 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 appear he wouldn't be standing off to the side going oh by the way this part's not for me uh in the same way that they were about to participate in be- bearing witness to something god was going to do yeah he was participating with them doing the same thing yeah uh and i think that uh hmm I d- I, I, my my I, mind turns to this idea of repentance and we think of it from a fallen perspective the idea of turning on to the right road for a person who's already Walking on the right road, to continue to walk on that road is to lead others in the path of repentance. So you're not doing anything against this idea of mm-hmm. repenting or calling other people to repent. You're just continuing to walk on the same road. Yeah. I think we get stuck because all we can see is that repentance is always a turning from a wrong to a right. But could repentance also be seen uh, from one perspective as continuing in that repentance? In other words, a continuing in the right direction so in that case, people were joining. There were others repenting, and Yeshua was walking, and then they went to follow him. And well, we, we tend to that, think that, that isn't really the, that isn't really the concept of repentance. That might be more the concept of perseverance. But repentance, by its very nature, in the in the Hebrew at least, connected with the with the verb shuv, means to turn around, means to go back. It means you've left something that was right. And now you must turn around and return. Teshuvah is a returning. And the same thing is true with the Greek term. And that means to do a 180 degree turnabout and go back to where you were supposed to go because you have strayed away. And that I agree. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that for those who have not turned to the wrong direction, if they're preaching a message of repentance, then the repentance in this respect or even from Paul's statements, the laws for the wicked not the righteous. Right. So and the idea of uh, a person who's living righteously, he could, Yeshua could do a mikvah all he wanted because that's the, it's the right path to go in. It's not like he was on the wrong path and needing to turn to the right one. He is showing that that is a right path. So I guess, I guess what I'm thinking for, yeah, that, that for those was... who have turned, or John is calling others to a gospel of repentance, did John need to repent himself or was he already on the right path? I'm sure that he did repent. I'm sure he did a, a, a mikvah of repentance initially. Uh, but your explanation then would fall more in line with those who said who would say that Yeshua's mikvah was a, shall we say, an example or a pattern for others to follow. I like the connection with 19 also, that it was a pre- in preparation, joining with the people in preparation for something God was about to do. I, yeah. I like that one more, yeah. I think. The, the difficulty other, the that I have thought. with 19 are these, uh, Exodus 19 and the parallel. The difficulty are these. We don't have any explicit statement that Moses washed. We can presume he did, but there's nothing in the text that says he did. Secondly, that the washing is specifically said to be of garments, which doesn't sound like a mikvah. It just means have clean clothes on. And thirdly, that there's nothing connected in 19 uh, or 20 with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not mentioned at all in the giving of the Torah. 
No, I'm not saying that he wasn't active in the giving of the Torah, but what I'm saying is from a parallel in terms of, of text, it isn't there at all. So um, uh, the, the things that we have at the mikvah of Yeshua are uh, an immersion, okay, uh, the presence, the visible presence of the Spirit of God, and uh, the voice. Right, and I, I would say, though, that the visible presence of the Spirit of God, I would be very comfortable with looking at Exodus uh, nineteen sixteen and 17, the flashes and the cloud and the trumpets. Yeah, but the text never says, uses the word spirit. And, the spirit. and it certainly could have. So what I'm saying is if we're trying to find a parallel by way of similar vocabulary, similar usage of words, which I think maybe is something, you know, I think that has a validity. And what I find in connection with the consecration of the priest is that we have that. We have a washing of the priest himself. We have anointing of oil. And when we look at the language of the anointing of oil, it very much patterns the giving of the Spirit. So we have those two things. And then we have the, apparently the declaration of Moses that they were now priests. I mean, they were ordained. And we have the declaration of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, I'm well pleased in him. So I'm just, I, I, like I said, I wouldn't fall, fall on my sword. Maybe, maybe the giving of the Torah is as much a, a valid parallel. Um, I just don't find the linguistic parallels that, 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 that I tend to find in the other uh, sequence of events. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the point is being made that, uh, you know, in terms of the ordination of the priest, the sequence seems to be out of place. You have the washing and and you have sacrifices first, then you have the washing, then you have. But you know, if we wanted to push the the analogy too far, which I don't want to do, but there were sacrifices done at at the uh, birth of Yeshua. I mean, Mary offered, uh, Mary and Joseph undoubtedly offered sacrifices for her return to to uh, uh, purity. So I mean, there there, if we want to look at sacrifices, those could have certainly pre uh, predated the, this time of his mikvah. Um, and uh, so, anyway, it's, it, it's, it's speculative, but I think there may be some tie-ins here that help us understand maybe why Yeshua underwent the mikvah. Okay, let's go on. Um, so, Yochanan's, uh, like uh, we could say, let's see, it seems very possible then that Yeshua, recognizing his role as the suffering servant and thus a priest who would bear the sins of Israel and atone for them, likewise recognized that at the initiation of his priestly work, it was necessary to undergo a mikvah. Yochanan's attendance at his mikvah symbolically fulfilled the role of Moses when he initiated the priesthood upon Aaron and his sons and gives the reason why Yeshua would have said it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. In the same way that the priest needed to be washed by Moses. How did Moses wash the priest? I have no idea. Maybe the same way that Yochanan did the mikvah, simply watched, simply was witness to make sure it was done completely. I don't know. But nonetheless, Moses is charged with the duty of washing the priest. Furthermore, the subsequent descent of the spirit in the form of a dove matches the anointing with oil also required for the ordination of the high priest. Thus, Yeshua's mikvah, as presented by Matthew, may well be drawn against the Torah background of the consecration of priests for their duties. If this is the case, then the point of Yeshua's mikvah is to emphasize that he is now entering into the duties of a priest, and particularly the high priest, on behalf of the people as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The righteousness which he and Yochanan fulfill in the mikvah was in the sense of type and anti-type in the foreshadowing of the Aaronic priesthood, pointing to the ultimate high priest, the messianic servant of 
Adonai. So, how, in what way do we, what, in what way do, let us fulfill all righteousness? In order for a priest to do his duty, he has to go through a mikvah. In order for the priest to do that, he was supposed to be, uh, and who did it after Moses died? We don't know. But here, if, if you allow my analogy, you have Yochanan acting out the part of Moses. You have Yeshua being the high priest. He undergoes a mikvah. He comes up out of the water, comes up on the shore, apparently, and then the Spirit of God descends and lights upon him and stays upon him. And that, uh, I think, would certainly be uh, indicative of an anointing. So, uh, Larry. Okay, so when Moses washed Aaron and his sons, that could be like a one-time initiation of the priesthood? It was a one-time initiation. Not needed again, so here we would have the same thing. This is a one-time initiation. Right. Right. Whether it was done for each high priest or not, it probably was, but I don't know who did it. Maybe the outgoing high priest. But clearly it was done only one time in a priest's life, not more than once. Right. All right. So I give you uh, that idea. Bat it around, throw it out, take it, whatever. Okay. After being baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Does it it make it sound as though the water was really cold, and he just went down and then immediately came back up? Um, If you read Luke, or Mark actually is the one who uses immediately all the time, right? For Mark, everything is immediately, immediately, immediately. Uh, Why does he do that? Well, one suggestion is at least that he's saying he wants to show the direct connection between the action of God and the work of Yeshua, that there's no lapse. You know, the old dictum factum, when God says it, Yeshua does it. It's that kind of a, an approach. Um, here, Matthew also has immediately, um, whether it means that he came up immediately or that as soon as he came up out of the water, which is the way I would take it, as soon as he came up on, out of the water, other things began to happen, namely the descent of of the Spirit and the voice from heaven. So this, I think, would strengthen our previous suggestion that the mikvah was symbolic of Yeshua's initiation as a priest. Immediately following his mikvah comes the anointing with oil. Uh, Moses or Matthew uses "behold" twice. He's going to use it once of uh, the descent of the Spirit and again of the voice from heaven. It says the heavens were opened. The idea of the heavens opening was a way of identifying the privilege of chosen prophets to receive the direct revelation of God as though the curtains of the divine dwelling were pulled aside and thus special or otherwise hidden knowledge about God and his activities are made known. We see this in Ezekiel 1.1. Now it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And we see similar kinds of phrases in Acts and in, in, in the book of Revelation. In the present text, the revelation is given to the people rather than to Yeshua, as Yochanan's testimony makes clear. The heavens were open in order to make known to Israel that her Messiah had come. But, they had, but had they understood the import of the mikvah as initiating Yeshua's priestly role, they might have better understood his role as the suffering Messiah rather than demanding his immediate role as the royal Messiah. It says, he saw the Spirit of God descending. Who is the he? Well, we know that at least it was Yochanan. In John, he makes it very clear. I saw the uh, Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. So, we would have to presume that Yeshua saw it too. So, at least there's two. Don't you think other people saw it? Uh, The Gospels don't indicate that they did, but I don't see why they wouldn't have. 
The Spirit is described as coming down and lighting upon, literally coming upon him. The use of this verb katabino in the sense of descending may well reflect, I think, the, the if, if, if you want to carry my analogy of the consecration of the priest, the Septuagint of Psalms 133, which parallels the joy of congregated Israel at the festivals with the anointing of Aaron as the high priest. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down, that's the word that's used, descending, upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down once again, the same verb, upon the edge of his robes. If our suggestion that Yeshua's mikvah was to be seen as part of the ordination ceremony of a priest, then the subsequent descent of the Spirit upon him fulfills the meaning of the anointing of the high priest with oil, which concluded his ordination. It was through the ordination ceremony that the Aaronic priest was made fit for his duties. In like manner, our Messiah was made ready by the empowering Holy Spirit for the priestly duties in which he soon would engage. Surely it was this anointing by the Spirit that was foundational for Yeshua's proclamation in the synagogue at Nazareth. He was given the scroll of Isaiah for reading the Haftarah, and he stood and read from Isaiah 61, 1-2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." His commentary on the portion was short and to the point, and many people wish that others would be that short and to the point. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So how is it that he saw himself as anointed by the Spirit of God? I think it must harken back to the mikvah, when the Spirit of God came upon him. And he, he saw that fulfilled there in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of God has come upon me. What does that mean? That the Lord has anointed me to do this work. The Gospel writers all contain the notice that when the Spirit descended upon Yeshua, he came in the form of a dove. Boy, if you want to, if you want to just read volumes and volumes on what different people think why it was a dove, the, you know, here's the text you can go to. Commentators just uh, seem to have no lack of uh, suggestions. And I give some of them to you here. I try to reduce them to just a few. Some have said uh, that... Uh, that um, it relates to Noah's dove, okay? The dove that Noah sent out from the ark, right? Came back with what? Yeah, same word. Uh, olive branch, and the olive branch was proof of what? That the flood had subsided, right? So the idea that the Spirit descends on a dove is like the dove coming back to the ark. God's wrath is over. The way of peace has come. The way of, uh, of uh, righteousness has come. Uh, the way of, uh, of shalom is there with uh, the person of Yeshua. Not only that, but you have the olive branch, which fits symbolically with the whole idea of the Messiah as the branch. Others have noted that in later uh, rabbinic literature, the bat kol, or the voice from heaven, is sometimes can, is seen as the cooing of a dove. For instance, in the Targum on Song of Songs, the voice of the turtle dove is translated the voice of the spirit of salvation. Others have suggested that the scribe just made an error. They were reading a Hebrew Matthew, and they instead of reading Yanuach, they looked at the Chet and thought it was a hay and changed it to Yonah. Yonah is the Hebrew word for dove, and Yanuach would be he rested. So some would say originally it simply said the Spirit of God rested upon him, and the scribes changed it to the Spirit of God was a dove upon him. Um, the problem with that is we don't have any text that would indicate that anybody did that. That's just entire speculation. 
Some note that Israel is called dove in Hosea 7.11, and so they see, well, okay, the Spirit coming upon Yeshua as the dove would indicate that Israel is uh, that Yeshua is the new Israel. Um, I don't think that has much merit besides the fact that in Hosea 7.11, when Ephraim or Israel is called a dove, it's because she's a silly dove and doesn't know which way to go, this way or that. Uh, so it's not a good symbol in that case, it's a bad symbol. Still, others take the phrase as a dove in an adverbial sense, describing the manner in which the Spirit descended, not the form. Not that the Spirit actually descended in a dove, but that it fluttered, somehow the Spirit of God fluttered down uh, in some kind of way like a dove would would flutter down, would land on something. Um, of course, the problem with that is, is that how would you see it if there wasn't some visible re- representation? So, I, I, don't, I don't think that has much merit. But why would you choose a dove? I mean, why not an eagle? You know, or... or I, well, you know, I, I, the, the question is being made, you know, maybe, maybe they just didn't know what it was, so they just called it a dove. Oh, okay. But it seems like there has to be some... I, I take it that there must be some divine reason why it was seen as a dove. I don't... Maybe not. I really don't have a lot of insight on this one. Okay, there were, the point is being made that there were also doves that were... The dove, of course, was offered as a sacrifice by those who were unable to afford the more costly sacrifices, which is true. But why, did, why would the dove represent the Holy Spirit? Now, we know since the time of, of uh, the writing of the Gospels, the dove became very much a Christian symbol of the Holy Spirit, but it's based upon this passage. This passage is not based upon that, uh, on that tradition. Allison and Davies, along with other commentators, take this final view that it was the form of a dove or the way that a dove comes, but disregard the notion that as a dove is adverbial. Thus, a dove really did descend upon Yeshua as the visible representation of the Spirit of God, and the closest and most obvious parallel is that of Genesis 1-2, in which the Spirit of God hovers, which is the word merachefet, which literally means to brood or to hover as a bird, over the waters in the work of creation. Thus, in Genesis 1, 2, three elements are parallel with the mikvah of Yeshua. There is water, there is a bird, and there is the Spirit of God. The import for the gospel writers then would be that Yeshua is marked as the one through whom a new creation would occur. We are, quoting Allison and Davies, accordingly encouraged to conclude that the Spirit as dove originally meant, and meant also for Matthew, that the events of Genesis 1 were being recapitulated or repeated in the Messiah's life, the eschatological creation had commenced. In other words, this is, they would say this is where you have the first indication of new heavens and new earth. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a new creation. Why? Because this one has come. And he has the Spirit hovers upon him the way uh, the Spirit of God hovered at the, at the beginning of creation. Other than that, I have no other better explanations. Um, those aren't all that satisfying for me, but maybe we'll find more later. All right, just a, maybe another minute or two. It says, and lighting upon him. Neither Mark nor Luke have this added verb. Apparently, Matthew wants to emphasize the remaining presence of the Spirit upon Yeshua. Though descending in the form of a dove, of which one would expect the presence of the Spirit was only momentary, right? How long does a dove stand on your shoulder or wherever? Um, Matthew adds that the Spirit was coming upon him. It may be that Matthew has a text like Numbers 11:17 in mind, in which God promises Moses to take of the Spirit who was upon him and put him upon the 70 elders chosen to assist him. The presence of the Spirit upon the 70 elders is evidenced by their engaging in prophecy, but the text is clear that this was a one-time phenomenon. 
And he took of the Spirit who was upon him, that is, upon Moses, and placed him upon the seventy elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. The fact that the Spirit rests upon the elders, but that the ability to prophesy is only temporary, may have prompted Matthew, if such a text was indeed in his purview, to emphasize the opposite in the case of Yeshua. The Spirit who came upon him, who rested upon him, also remained. As the anointed Messiah and the servant of Adonai, he is endowed with the power and presence of the Spirit in order to accomplish his mission of salvation. Well, we're going to... Let me just, uh, let me just do the first part of this. We'll talk about uh, the bot kol, or the heavenly voice in the rabbinic literature, and then we'll, then we'll stop. We won't get through the rest of these pages. We'll do that next week. Verse 17, And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, he uses the term behold to draw attention to this second fact. There are two events. The Spirit comes and the voice is heard. They're separate events, but they're connected. And they're connected because each, uh, each are, are introduced with the word behold as very important aspects in the life of Yeshua. Throughout the rabbinic literature, notice is found of the audible voice of God. Do you notice nobody seems to be surprised at this? Isn't that amazing in the Bible when these things happen? You know, like when a donkey talks or, you know, or something. Nobody says, oh, you know, just answers the donkey like this is just what happens every day. We don't have any indication at all in the scriptures that anybody was concerned that they heard the, this audible voice of God, nor do we in the rabbinic literature like anybody gets nervous about it. It's like it's, it's what they expect. I don't know. At any rate. Yet by the time of the rabbinic sages, the need to separate the Almighty from the fallen world prompted them to adopt the terminology bat kol to describe the heavenly voice. This daughter of a voice is literally the way we say echo in Hebrew. And though it can, be at times, it can at times describe the very voice of God, more often it seems to make the audible sound as secondary and therefore once removed from the Almighty. In other words, when you hear an echo, you're not hearing the immediate source. You're hearing it bounced off of something else. And why did they do that? Because the rabbis were coming more and more to believe that the Holy God cannot, in, cannot engage directly this world. A little Gnosticism going on there. Separation between the Holy God and His created universe is also seen in the Targumim, in which the word Memra, which is the Aramaic word for word, of God is that which enters the realm of human existence rather than God Himself. So when God wants to intersect with mankind, He sends His Memra, He sends His Word. He doesn't come Himself. He sends His Word. It's, it's kind of once removed from God. It may be that the use of Bat Kol was adopted in direct opposition to the followers of Yeshua, and, uh, and an emphasis upon the incarnational status of God in Messiah. For quite often, though not always, the bot coal is an inferior representation of the divine will or revelation. What am I saying here? Do you think that the, um, that the tradition amongst the followers of Yeshua about this voice at his mikvah was very important? And do you think that they may have used that as part of their apologetic? And somebody says, why do you follow this Yeshua of Nazareth? Oh, you haven't heard? Well, there were multiple witnesses. When he did a mikvah, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. What could you say to that? I mean, if there were multiple witnesses that you could even interview, said, Yeah, I was at the mikvah, and this is what we heard. What could you, you, know, what could you do with that? Well, here's what you can do with it. You can say that a voice from heaven isn't all that sure. 
One example will suffice to illustrate this. Involved in halakhic disputes, the following story is told about the sages. It has been taught, On that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forward every imaginable argument, but they did not accept them. Said he to them, If the halakha agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. Thereupon the carob tree was torn a hundred cubits out of its place. Others affirm four hundred cubits. No proof can be brought from a carob tree, they retorted. Again he said to them, If the halakha agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water flowed backwards. No proof can be brought from a stream of water, they rejoined. Again he urged, If the halakha agrees with me, let the walls of the schoolhouse prove it. Whereupon the walls inclined to fall. But Rabbi Yehoshua rebuked them, saying, When scholars are engaged in a halakhic dispute, what have you to interfere? Hence they did not fall in honor of Rabbi Yehoshua, nor did they resume their upright manner in honor of Rabbi Eliezer. And they are still standing thus inclined. Again he said to them, If the halakha agrees with me, let it be proved from heaven. Whereupon a heavenly voice, a bot kol, cried out, Why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the halakha agrees with him? But Rabbi Yehoshua rose and exclaimed, It is not in heaven. You know what verse he's alluding to there, right? Deuteronomy 30. The Torah is not in heaven that you have to go up there. It's not out in the deep sea that you have to go out there. Where is it? Near you. In your mouth and in your heart. What did he mean? Said Rabbi Yermiyahu that the Torah had already been given at Mount Sinai. We pay no attention to a heavenly voice because you have long since written in the Torah at Mount Sinai after the majority must one incline. So how do you combat the uh, followers of the way saying, no, there was a heavenly voice at the mikveh. You adopt a halakha that says, we, that, that doesn't matter. It's the majority, the majority opinion of the rabbis that matters. Systematic theology, very good. Here, even the heavenly voice, the bat kol, is not sufficient to settle the argument. One cannot help but wonder if the story was given particularly to discredit the testimony of the followers of Yeshua who claimed divine prerogative on behalf of Yeshua based upon the voice from heaven at his mikveh. Still, the rabbinic literature gives evidence that God did make his will known at times through the audible communication, and particularly in terms of marking out worthy individuals. And we'll end with this quote from Tosefta, which is earlier yet. When the latter prophets died, that is, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malki, then the Holy Spirit came to end in Israel. But even so, they made them hear through a bat kol. Sages gathered together in the upper room from the house of Guriah in Jericho, and a bat kol came forth and said to them, There is a man among you who is worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, but his generation is unworthy of such an honor. They all set their eyes upon Hillel the elder. And when he died, they said to him, Woe, they said about him, Woe for the humble man, woe for the pious man, the disciple of Ezra. Then another time they were in session at Yavne and heard about Kol saying, There is among you a man who is worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, but the generation is unworthy of such an honor. They all turned their eyes upon Samuel the small. At the time of his death, what did they say? Woe for the humble man, woe for the pious man, the disciple of Hillel, the elder. So what's the point here? The point is, is that when there is someone who is worthy of receiving the Holy Spirit, according to the rabbis, it's not uncommon to have a voice from heaven say, this one is worthy of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, why did Hillel and his disciple not receive the Holy Spirit? Well, because the, the generation in which they lived were not worthy of having someone there of that stature. Now, just the opposite is the case with Yeshua, right? 
He receives the Holy Spirit because he's worthy. And he comes to make the generation worthy, right? So, um, very interesting to see these parallels of the giving of the Holy Spirit and the bat kol in the rabbinic literature. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.